Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Uh, this last week, I was uh, uh, running, and I was listening to a podcast called This American Life. It's not my typical—it's sort of like my backup podcast. The one I was typically listening to um, ended, and so I just needed one real quick, hadn't planned ahead, grabbed the next episode of This American Life and started listening to it. And this one was uh, particularly interesting in that the topic—each week is a different topic—the topic for this one was blackjack, all right? The, the card game the casino card game, and in particular highlighted um, a practice called card counting, all right? So there's been movies and documentaries and all sorts of stuff about that. Card counting is a way to play the game in which statistically you give the advantage to the counter, all right? All the casino games, they're set up in a way that the house or the casino will win. They're set up that way to take your money. And this is a way to sort of actually flip the statistics. That's, that's, That's what they say, okay? And so it was interesting to hear about that. And in the show, uh, there were human interest stories, all right, that sort of related to that. Like one was really heartbreaking about this woman who uh, was addicted to gambling and the way that casinos will prey upon people like that. And there's all these practices that they use in order to uh, just take as much money as possible from you without any concern about your life and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's a reality. And it was a good warning um, story in this uh, podcast, right? So that was interesting. Another interesting story or human interest story that they posted or talked about was this group called the Holy Rollers, all right? The Holy Rollers. It's not the motorcycle group. There's a motorcycle group called that. Um, But this is a different group. It all started with these young men who learned to count cards and play blackjack and were actually pretty good at it, successful at it, in that they won far more times than they lost. All right. And they had a little team and they were traveling around to local casinos and they were um, gambling and winning this, this money and stuff. But they had a problem. The other people on their team, they could not trust. All right. So they had these people and they would, they would take in like several hundred thousand dollars in this casino. They come back out and say they lost, but they didn't. They pocketed the money. So these guys got together and they're thinking to themselves like, uh, well, we need to find people to build our team that we can trust. So, believe it or not, these two guys were Christians and they went to different churches and they decide to actually recruit their small groups into um, their gambling ring. And so we didn't plan this. I just heard this podcast this week, but we've had an emphasis on small groups here. And so if you are not yet in a small group, uh, you never know what's going to go on in small groups. All right. So I'm actually very hopeful that there are no national gambling rings happening in one of our small groups, but but you just never know. All right. And so if you are not yet in a small group, here's a couple that you can join. I'm not saying any of these gamble or anything like that. I'm just saying here's a couple that you could check out. After the service, there's a a table out in the lobby and uh, you can find a good small group for you. So back to the story. It really did happen. These two guys went and recruited their small groups because they thought, they said to themselves, they said, we need to find people we can trust. So we can trust our small group. And uh, here, here it, it took this really interesting twist. At one point, they literally put together a PowerPoint presentation to explain 
card counting, and how they were historically very successful at this. Their little churches there in the Northwest United States actually gave this presentation to the church gathered. They gave this presentation and there were several people in the church that cashed out their retirements and took out their savings to give to this group of 10 to 12 20-year-olds that would then travel the United States and uh, gamble uh, their money, right? It's just a fascinating story. I was all into it, right? You know, and I'm listening to this. And, and they were good at it. They were actually good at it. At one point, one year, they won in winnings. They won over one and a half million dollars. They brought this money back, paid back all of their investors, everybody else, they got their money back and gave generously to their church, all right? So this is what happened. It's, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I'm not. It really did happen. They're called the Holy Rollers. There's a documentary on Netflix. And so you can go watch that. Anyways, the group, even though they're successful, even though they feel that they are doing what's right, they end up breaking up. The group breaks up because of two factors. Now keep this in mind. This podcast is a production of Chicago Public Radio, all right? It is a national, secular podcast that just talks about different things. They repeatedly unpack the idea, two ideas. One was the temptation to sin. This group broke up primarily because of the temptation to sin. As they were um, going out into these casinos, they, they couldn't, you know, you can't just go like withdraw several hundred thousand dollars. They had hundreds of thousands of dollars in envelopes in their pockets as they were going into these casinos where prostitution is rampant, where um, all sorts of addictions, drug abuse, alcohol abuse is rampant, and just um, uh, gambling and that sort of thing was rampant. So there was this constant temptation in the group to personally sin, and that began to eat at their souls, all right? There was another thing that they talked about, which I found fascinating because not only was it on a secular podcast, but also because it was an American podcast, and this is a concept that we'll unpack here in just a minute, that we don't really talk about. Shame. Shame. So the group was going into these different casinos and they were pretending they had, they, they took on different personas. They would dress in costumes, tell different stories about who they were and where they were from and all this sort of stuff. And so those, even those who did not participate in the misgivings or the pretending or the, um, the taking on the different personas began to feel this deep sense of shame that they were associated with the other group that was. So you have this story on a secular broadcast that unpacks a bunch of Christians traveling the nation, winning millions of dollars, playing blackjack, and it all falls apart because of the temptation to sin and the shame and the guilt that went along with it. Fascinating. Daniel in chapter nine is going to pray. He's going to pray this big long prayer that really deals with the concept of shame. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to unpack this prayer and really look at it and learn about shame and how it affects us and more specifically corporate shame. And I love this because what we get to do is take Daniel and his words and throw them right out there in the middle and shine a bright light on them and look at them and learn from them. And we get to do it from the safety of not throwing our own sins out in the middle. So this is a safe lab where we get to like kind of judge Daniel and his friends and then you don't feel judged, all right? So that sounds like a deal for me, all right? And it sounds like a good thing. That's what we're gonna do. But before we do, let's pray together. You pray for me. 
and I'll pray for you. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to turn our focus. Even as we laugh, as we get along, those sort of things, God, our hearts are heavy. The prayer that we prayed earlier for the Ukrainians, God, the prayer that we prayed for those, uh, the innocent involved in Russia, God, the different things that are all going on in that conflict. We pray for all of the humans involved in it. But for a second, God, we turn our attention away from that and focus in on Daniel chapter 9. We open our hearts and our minds to the possibility of being ashamed, of being embarrassed, so that we may grow closer to you, that we can leave here today walking closer with you and in line with the standards and the way that you would have us walk. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Daniel chapter 9 will end our six-part sermon series on the book of Daniel. We'll talk just a little bit about this um, chapter and then we'll unpack it. But so far, what we have discovered is over and over and over again, the book of Daniel has one dominant theme. And that really is that God is sovereign, that he's in charge, that he is the ultimate authority in the world, regardless of which geopolitical um, forces are in power, which is incredibly applicable to our world today, right? That doesn't matter as Daniel goes into exile. It doesn't matter if he is um, under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Darius is the one that we're going to look at today, that God is ultimately completely and totally sovereign. Also interesting in this study is we've gone through three uh, genres is what you would call it. The first one was narrative or storytelling. And that really involves things like uh, what happened. Storytelling just deals with what happened, right? So Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Those are stories about what happened. Last week we looked at apocalyptic literature which discusses primarily what will happen. You understand? You get that? And so what happened, what will happen, and today the genre is prayer. And that prayer really focuses in on a response to what is happening. It's a way to respond to what is going on. And and I'll be really upfront with you. The challenge today, what I'm going to ask us to do, is that by the end of this morning, we are going to pray like this prayer. We're going to follow Daniel's example together corporately. I'm going to walk you through it. We're all going to stand towards the end of this and pray this way. It actually turns out to be more challenging than we may first think. The context is simple. When Daniel prays in in chapter 9, he was reading his Bible. He was reading his Bible and he read this prophet named Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, he learned that the exile would end in 70 years. And that really spurred him on toward praying. And if you are not familiar with the word exile, what happened was that Babylon, a nation, a force, came into Israel and Jerusalem in particular, captured a lot of the people there and took them over to Babylon. That is an exile, all right? And so Daniel is living in this strange place with these strange customs and the strange food and and dress and attire and culture and religion, all that. He's a stranger in a strange world. And in the midst of all of that, Daniel is constantly facing this upheaval, this unsettling of the influences or, or the world powers. Like I said, it starts with Nebuchadnezzar, it goes through Belshazzar, and then it ultimately ends in Darius, these three different kings and three different kingdoms, all right? Two dominant ones in Babylon and then in the Medes and the Persians. Total unrest. Stranger, strange land, 
unrest about the political and the geopolitical forces. And yet in that, Daniel, through the word, through prayer, finds hope. And this hope causes him to live in a unique way, all right? Um, And I wonder if we don't feel a lot of that same thing constantly, right? I I mean, it's several thousand years ago, but I think that we can feel this same way. I mean, just, you don't even have to raise your hand, just nod your head. How many of you ever feel like through watching um, television or hearing about something that's going on with the Conway um, school board meetings or something like that, you feel like a stranger in a strange land? Like, do you ever look around and go, what are we doing? Like, it, it seems like one day we just woke up and like all of the values are reset and, and people are talking about things that I don't even understand. And I don't understand how they even got to that place. And there's even this point in which we're starting to feel like, man, I was willing to go to you to this level, but now you're like running off a cliff over there. And I don't understand how you don't see it. So often when I'm watching the news or just talking to people about something that's going on in our world or in our community or in our city, or in our neighboring cities, or in our state, I'm thinking, what? I feel like I'm, I'm in a foreign world that I do not understand. That sort of lostness, that stranger in a strange land. And then we have these constant changing authorities. Like who's in charge around here, right? You ever want to stand up and go like, who's running this thing? You know, because you're doing a bad job at it, right? You look around and and there's all sorts of upheaval. And and if you look at geopolitical situations like um, on the same day, think about this. We we just breeze through this stuff. On the same day that we are watching uh, Russia invade the Ukraine, we have the announcement of a uh, Supreme Court justice nominee. All right. So no uh, no commentary on either of those. Those two things just happening in one day have massive, massive ramifications for our world and our country, and we're just like breezing through it, right? You know? Or if you think about different situations like, you know, like back in the day when newspapers kind of were the most influential thing ever, newspapers, and then it became radio, and then it became television, and now we're at some situation in which social media dictates things. We are heavily influenced by social media. Whatever's trending, I can't keep up with what's trending. I don't even know which social media platform we're all supposed to be on, right? They create a new one every single day, and this one's censoring that one, and this one's trending, and this one is telling people to tear, um, like, soap dispensers off of the bathroom walls. I don't know what we are doing, right? Who's in charge around here? At the same time, and I'm not even saying this uh, superficially. I really do mean this. I do find intense, lasting, abiding hope in Jesus. That all of this world is crazy. And yet Jesus still sits on his throne. And that one day I truly do believe with every fiber in my being that he will physically return to this planet and put it all back in order. That there will be no question about who is running this place because it will be ran right. It will be ran just and it will be ran truly. I believe that. I also believe, and this is the hope really, is that you don't have to wait for that. That today, even now, you can walk with Jesus. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of constant death, he is with me. And his rod and his staff, they protect me. They comfort me. He leads me beside still waters. I believe in that hope. So in a very real way, we can personally relate to what Daniel is talking about here. We can get to this point in which we are motivated like Daniel to pray. And for the moments 
Uh, this morning, I just want to highlight some of the characteristics of that prayer and sort of unpack it a little bit here. So if you have your Bible, you should be at Daniel chapter 9. I want to read to you just some of the text. What I did was, it's a long prayer, and I took selections out of the prayer and kind of combined it in a way that it really summarizes the heart of what's going on with this prayer. Verse 1 through 4 says, In the first year of Darius's reign, that's the new king, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of days... Uh, the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, that's like uncomfortable clothing to put on you, and ashes. The fasting and the sackcloth is to make you feel uncomfortable about your sin, right? Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Listen closely, my God. This is verse 18. Listen closely, my God, and hear. We are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous or good acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. If you read all 19 verses, then what's very clear is that Daniel takes this very um, flattering tone with the Lord. That he is uh, uh, praiseworthy. That he is making much of who God is. Specifically, he mentions this idea that God keeps his promises. He said that in verse 4. That his covenant promises are what Daniel is going to focus in on. He says that the great and the awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenants... That covenant being the back and forth promises that what Daniel is spurred on by as he thinks about this promise that the desolation would end in 70 years is that God keeps his word. That God does what he says he will do. And that really hits me in a personal spot, right? It hits us in a space that is hard for us to grasp because we are so familiar with people or persons not keeping their word, right? All of us are either personal or we know somebody personally affected in which one day dad went away, right? Or that mom was unfaithful. Or that even like situations where you're at work and you've got this coworker that you really like and you guys are building something together or you've got this boss or this employee, y'all are working on something together and then they get a better job like in Minnesota or something, you know, and they leave and you're like, I totally understand, I get it, right? But man, that, that stinks, right? That's not fun. We're, we're used to people going away. It happens so often that it's just the, 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 the almost the expectation that when things are going well, they're probably going to bail. We think that, we feel that, we hurt in that way. I still remember Wendy in the first grade. Her dad got deployed somewhere else and she bailed from our, fin our friend group and we're still mad at Wendy, you know. She's left, you know, and, and we we're all mad about it. <laughs> Me and Jason and Sonia and Wendy, we were like four amigos, you know, and Wendy left. But, you know, we can all like recount stories of your own Wendy that just leaves. And so when we hear something where God says, I do what I say I will do, I keep my promises, that's encouraging. But we kind of hold it a little bit like, I'm not sure, right? But God keeps his promises. What he says he does, he will do. That's encouraging. It's also sobering because keep in mind, God also promises that he says, I will discipline those I love. 
I will correct my children. I won't let you get out of line. I will prune the vine, right? Those sort of things. So we need to really know and rest in this idea that God keeps his words. Daniel will go on to really root the prayer request in God's uh, compassionate loyalty. That God is constantly compassionate. His abundant compassion. One of the most impactful words of this entire verse here is this verse right here. Or this word right here. With. That God is with you. So you think about it. Daniel could have said anything. He could have prayed something about like, God, you are great and awe-inspiring because you are the creator God. That everything we see was formed in your mind and, 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 and established by your word. He could have said you are great and awe-inspiring because you sit on your throne. That's really the theme of Daniel and so it would have made sense right there. But it's not his power or his creativity or his ability it is his relationship with us that really roots into this promise. So as we think about what's happening in our world and as we think about this prayer, don't lose sight of, keep one foot in the reality that God is a relational God, that he deeply loves you, that he is a good and a compassionate father. I will hear my children sometimes talk about friends at school. You know, and they'll say something and we're like, who is that? And they'll say, well, well, her mom is, is a police officer. They'll say that. Or they'll say, his dad is the superintendent, something like that. They'll, they'll just kind of relate to these people based on what their dad does. And I can relate to that too, because I have overheard people talk about my sons that way. They'll say, well, his dad is the pastor of Second Baptist. And nobody means anything bad by that or anything. It's not wrong as a way to say, but we all do know, right? That to my boys, I'm not the pastor of Second Baptist. I'm just dad. It's not what I do. It's just who I am. And I've always been dad. And I was dad before there was a Second Baptist. And I'll be dad if there ever isn't a Second Baptist. As Daniel prays, he's not praying so much about what God does or what he can do. It's about who God is to Daniel and to the people. And so that really drives us to the other side of the equation, right? You start thinking about that and you're wondering, okay, so if the people of Israel had this good and compassionate and gracious, um, uh, beneficial relationship with God, then how did they respond to that? How did they react to that? How would you react to that? Well, the answer is not good. They did not do great at all. If you look at verse 8, I think that it sums it up quite well. Verse 8 says, Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. It's such a strong phrase that we have sinned against you. The idea of shame is such a, a weighty phrase. And to be really honest with you, I believe one of the reasons that our society, our country, our, country, our hemisphere struggles so much is because we have lost this idea of shame. That we no longer feel shame for what we do. That we don't even acknowledge the idea that there's shame. That I am so independent that who cares what they think. Shame is this idea that there is a standard or there is a perspective outside of my own that is right. That no matter how I can justify my own actions, there's a standard that we ascribe to, that we as a society hold up, and that sometimes I break it. And when I break it, then I should feel embarrassed. 
So like if I'm ever in public and I were to snap at my wife, or if I was to mistreat a stranger, or something like that, or if I was to take something for my own good in front of others at the expense of somebody else, that I should rightfully, no matter how I justify it, I should rightfully feel some sort of embarrassment or some sort of shame because there's a standard that I don't meet, right? We don't, we don't feel that way anymore. We've like killed shame, made shame such a negative that you're not even allowed to think that it is such a thing. Shame. In the Bible, there's this concept called sin. And really what it is, is not meeting God's standard. The way that he created things. We call that sin five times in this text. In verse 5, 8, 11, 15, and in 16, he mentions the sins. He outlines the sins. He lists them all out. He says that they did wrong. They acted wickedly. They rebelled. They turned away from God's commands and ordinances. They did not listen to the prophets. Again, in verse 9, they rebelled. um, Furthermore, they didn't turn away from their evil actions. They did not pay attention to truth. And in verse 13 and 15, they acted wickedly. Again, they did what was wrong. They used people. They ignored God. They did that. And so Daniel says, public shame belongs to us. We all knew what we should do, and yet we didn't do it. And we sinned. That's a hard word for us to really think about. Here's another hard word for us to think about. Us. This is really going to, it really hit me in the gut. It might hit you as well. Not only have we lost the idea of shame, but we have lost the idea of corporate shame, corporate sin. We have done wrong. We. We are really good since the garden of passing the buck. We are so good at standing before God and saying, God, it was that woman that you gave me. When we have political discussions, we're always so good at pointing the finger across the aisle or at the other description. We are so good at blaming somebody else. It was either that coast or that coast or those people who made those decisions. It's never us. We have lost this idea that we have on some level corporately done what is wrong. We're good at corporately identifying with the wins, right? We like to say that we won, but never that we lost. Did any of y'all watch any basketball yesterday? Did y'all notice that the Razorbacks win? Did anybody notice? Have you heard that? Uh, it's, it's been brought up a couple of times this morning. Arkansas beat Kentucky. It was a fun game to watch. I watched it. And y'all know I'm a Longhorn. I'm a Texan. That's the way I am. It's the way I'm always going to be. But because of you, I was standing there cheering for these hogs. I did not call the hogs, but I did cheer for the hogs. And I was excited about that, right? And, and, and when they won, I was excited about it. And I was like, yes, you know, that was fun. That was fun to watch. Texas also won. And that was even more fun to watch. But it was a fun thing to watch. I would like, and when we do that, you hear people walk around and see the game. We won. Did you see it? We beat Kentucky. Everybody says that. But in a down season, they need to fix what's going on up there, right? They need to get that coach in line. The boosters down in Austin, they, those guys, they're buying football coaches every other year, you know. We're still paying off the last three, that sort of stuff. It's always them. We always win and they always lose. Do you know what I'm saying here? We're so good at that. We never sit in our own ugly. 
We never sit in our own shame. And as a country, we are, we are really bad about this. Like there is so much to be proud of as an American, and you should be. I am. I think there is a lot of things that we have done very well. Strong things, mighty things. We created the internet. We created microwave ovens, which led to Hot Pockets, all right? And so, <laughs> so we win, right? We win at everything. That's the way we are. And we should be proud of that. And we stand up and we say, this is, these are our public parks. We have Yosemite, all right? We have these wins. We did this. But when it comes to the reality that we keep electing shameful, moralist, spineless leaders to lead us, that's always them. They did that, right? When it comes to the reality that our country accepts as good what is evil, both in our education system and in our entertainment and in our public morals, then that's always them. They did that, not we. You didn't invent the internet, neither did Al Gore, but you didn't do that stuff. But we have all the wins and they have all the losses. Take a, take, notice this, Daniel has no part in this story. There's no part in the Bible in which Daniel does any of this stuff. Daniel didn't rebel against God. Daniel didn't ignore the prophets. Daniel listens to the prophets. And yet he has this way of standing up and saying that we have done wrong. I think it would be helpful for us to draw a line or draw a distinction between the differences of blame and opportunity. The difference between blame and responsibility. There are a lot of things that our country has done that we should feel shame about that we don't have to carry blame for. There's a lot of things that I'm ashamed of, but I didn't partake in it. I'm not to blame for it. However, I will say this, that whatever the circumstance is, whether it's racial reconciliation and relationships, whether it's authority and strength, whether it's uh, um, pushing a group of people down, and lifting up another group of people. Whatever it is, I don't care what it is. Even though I didn't do it, I don't have the blame for it. If I have the opportunity to make it better, and I do not take that responsibility to use my position and my influence and just my voice and my social media, whatever, if I don't take that responsibility, then I ought to feel ashamed. I ought to feel personal shame. There's a difference in blame and responsibility. I'm not telling you to carry this, but I am telling you that we have this. Shame is painful, and I don't think that we should seek to do shameful acts. But when it does happen, when we look around and we are embarrassed, we should look with eyes wide open into our own ugly. It can be a good place to start to say, this is where we are, and it's embarrassing. And then turn toward the better, to seek, to seek instead the good, to be where God intended us to be. So God is great, and we are not. And that leads Daniel to not only confess, but to request, to ask God to do a few things. The prayer actually begins in verse 15 through 19, but it's summed up really well in uh, verse uh, 19. It says very simply this, Lord, hear, Lord, forgive, Lord, act, and listen. 
It's such a short prayer and an easy prayer. I wondered if maybe we could read it together. Y'all read this with me. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. Of course God hears, right? God can hear everything. There is no thought that escapes God. So what is Daniel asking God to do there? Well, he's asking God to turn his attention toward You remember when God calls Moses out of the burning bush and God says to Moses, I hear the cries of my people. I hear their pain. What God is saying is I'm paying attention to that. We need to ask God to pay attention to the circumstances. He hears it. We're asking him to give attention toward that circumstance. We need God to let us off the hook. We have done wrong and we need him to forgive us to let us off the hook. And furthermore, we need him to listen and act, to not only hear, not only forgive us, but to do what only God can do. And that's to restore us. You see, Daniel was praying not that they would just be forgiven and left in Babylon, but forgiven and restored back into Israel. That was the prayer for Daniel. That's the prayer for us. And the really encouraging thing about it is that this is what God does. All throughout the Bible, this is the way that God is. Remember the story of Jonah? Y'all remember that story? Jonah was a prophet of God, and he ran from God. And so some people on a boat threw him overboard, and and a fish swallowed him. Three days later, the fish spits him back up on the shore. He ends up doing what God told him to do, but like not with a good attitude. He goes to this city called Nineveh and he walks through the middle of this city and I picture him like sulking and he's mad about it. And he's like, hey, listen, everybody, 40 days, God's going to kill you. That's, uh, that's my message, you know, give your offering. That sort of thing. He just, he's just a bad preacher. He wasn't very happy about it. And so he walked around telling everybody and then the Ninevites do what Jonah was afraid that they would do. If you read back in Jonah chapter four, three and four, if you read back in Jonah, it says that from the king to the poor, from the old to the young, everybody in between, even the animals, put on sackcloth and ashes. They repented and God forgave them. The animals didn't repent, but they put the sackcloth on. They repented and God forgave them. Listen, if God can forgive the Ninevites, he can forgive us. He can restore us. He can lift us up. So here's the application. When is the last time you prayed for us? When's the last time you prayed for your church as a whole? When's the last time you prayed for your community, for Conway, for your university? When's the last time you prayed for your state, for your country? We are a phenomenally great country. We really are but we are deeply flawed. And it is not unpatriotic. It is not unthankful to acknowledge that we have done things we should feel ashamed about. When's the last time you prayed in this way? I don't believe that it's always helpful to uh, turn the scriptures into a formula or to kind of divide things out into sort of like a, like a system, but sometimes just for the sake of learning it, there can be some helpful things with, um, with looking at a system or like a mnemonic, right? And this is the way that I would break down the prayer. You can write this down if you want, but this is what we're going to do here in just a minute. The first one is he recognizes who God is. He says, God, you are a promise-keeping God, you know, that sort of thing. 
The second thing that he does is expose our shame. I use those words on purpose because they sound like they go together. They're really um, confrontational. God already knows all the things that we've done wrong, but it is right, it is good to agree with God about our sin, to say what we have done is wrong and we are embarrassed about it. And then finally, to ask God to do what only God can do, and that's to restore us, to restore humanity back to a right position with God, to ask for God to restore peace, for ask God to restore his glory. That's what we're gonna do here in just a minute. In just a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand and pray. I'm gonna ask Rich to come out and begin to play because we're going to finish the service today collectively going through these steps. I'll read a step and let you pray. But before we do, I wanna read something I think is pretty cool to you. Something I think is really encouraging. Do you remember at the beginning of the sermon when I said that Daniel was reading his Bible and that motivated him toward these thoughts? Do you remember what book I said he was reading? And you just say it out loud if you remember. Jeremiah, that's right. It was Jeremiah chapter 29. So what I thought we would do is before we pray like Daniel, let's read what Daniel read, all right? And this is really cool. It's encouraging because you can hear, you can hear Jeremiah saying the words. I can see why Daniel was so encouraged by the words, but also I think for us today, these words are so encouraging to us. And so before we pray, hear what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14 says, For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and I will confirm my promises concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Your plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart and I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. I wanna invite all of you to stand. Y'all stand with me and as you're standing, all of those promises that, that God made when he says, when you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Remember this, all of those yous in that passage are y'alls. They're all plural. When you, when we seek God, we will find him. So bow your, eye, bow your head, close your eyes. I'm gonna just give you a moment to pray. Begin by putting your heart into a position of prayer. Silence the things that are in your mind. Silence your mind's notifications. Set it on do not disturb and then begin praying. Begin a prayer with recognizing who God is. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart, you declare that to God. God, you are. And then now expose our shame. Call sin, sin. And then finally, knowing that he wants to, knowing that he will, ask him to restore us. Ask God to do what only God can do.
God, this morning, we praise you for who you are. We recognize that you are a promise-keeping God. We do understand that we are not Israel, that these promises in Jeremiah, these promises in Daniel, what you spoke to Abraham, they apply to Israel. But God, keeping with your character and your person, we fall on those promises. We know that you are a compassionate and a gracious and a good, good father who gives good gifts. That everything that we have that is good comes from the father of light. And so God, we praise you for that. At the same time, God, we have not met your standard. Even us who have trusted you as our savior and as our hero, we have acknowledged our sin and trusted you for eternal security. God, we have turned so easily to the world. Like a dog to its vomit, God, we have chosen lesser things. We have put our faith and our hope in polling data, our social media trends. We have built our identity in the way that we look and what we can accomplish and not in what you did and accomplished on the cross. God, we have looked for prideful ways to build ourselves up, pleasure to appease our pain, safety and security and measures that are outside of your will and your way. God, our country has accepted things that are wrong as right. We have been motivated by personal gains. God, we have built a perspective on getting everything we can, regardless of who it hurts. God, we have given the strongest authority to people who are pretty or who can act or who can sing. We have let them influence us far more than those who stand in pulpits and rightly divide the word of God. And so we are sorry for that. We are embarrassed. We are ashamed and we should be. How ugly our sin is. For such a great country, we have done great sin. And so God, now we ask you to do what only you can do, to restore us, to strengthen us, to build us, not in some fallen image that we chase after, but instead in your son's image, that we would lead low and humble, that we would serve and care, that we would be about the other for the good of the other in your glory. God, restore us to that position as a church, as a community, as a state, university, and as a country, God, restore us in those ways. We know that you want to, we know that you will. And right now with all of our hearts, we seek you. As one family, we pray together, amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.